Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. With the public health emergency for COVID now declared over and more than 1 million Americans dead from this epidemic, we wanted to reflect on what we've learned, where we can do better, and what's needed moving forward to prepare for the next pandemic. I'm joined by NEJM Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eric Rubin, and by Dr. Harvey Feinberg. Dr. Feinberg is the former Dean of the Harvard School of Public Health, and he's currently President of the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. So Dr. Feinberg, I'd like to start with you. Early on in the epidemic, you wrote a roadmap published in the New England Journal of Medicine outlining how we could control the epidemic in a matter of months. Clearly, that's not what happened. What happened? What happened is that we failed at the outset to do many of the things that we had to do in order to get ahead of the curve of the pandemic. We failed to organize properly a leadership array with clear guidance, a clear line of authority, clear responsibility, and a clear strategy. We absolutely failed early on diagnostic tests. We had very few diagnostic tests available. We did not mobilize the private sector to work together with government to produce the number of tests that would be required. And so we were basically flying with blinders on in the earliest months of the pandemic, unable to track accurately exactly where it was going, how quickly it was spreading, who was being affected. So that was a very serious deficiency. It became a very great challenge across the states with lack of coordination, uh, states competing with one another for equipment. And we had many missteps around communication with the public. So if you go down the list of things that we needed to do, frankly, on all fronts, we fell short. I want to go to Eric here. Eric, we've published studies from these other countries that track, and I want to talk about why data collection is vital and what happens when we don't have it. Well, we're simply flying blind. I mean, it's not that surprising. It, it would apply to any other problem we were having. If we were a large company and we were trying to make business decisions without the financial data that to back them up, we wouldn't make good decisions. Health is no different from that. We need a lot of information. Now, it's important to point out that part of the reason that some countries could do better than us is because their health systems lent themselves better to the collection of those data. So it's not as easy to do some of the things that were done successfully in other countries here in the U.S. Nevertheless, that doesn't make it less important. For example, if isolation and quarantine are important to controlling a disease like COVID-19, then you need to know where the disease is. You have to diagnose it. You have to understand the communities in which it's spreading so that you can apply some sorts of measures to help decrease that rate of transmission. Now, we're a journal that primarily publishes randomized controlled trials. But in the setting of a healthcare emergency like this, it takes too long to do those trials to get some answers, and you need answers right away. And so we really rely on observations for an epidemic like the one we're talking about. They come from population-based data. 
does a drug work? Does an intervention that everyone's using already work? We can't tell that without having some sort of systematically collected data. And I want to emphasize the systematically part. If you're in a country where all the health records are available and where everyone has access to these electronic health records, then there's the opportunity to collect data on a group of patients where you know a lot about each patient. One of the points that uh, Eric's statement really emphasizes to my mind is how different aspects of our healthcare system performance and readiness will impinge on how well we are able to respond to a pandemic. So, for example, a great strength in the U.S. was the availability of intensive care at a much wider array than in many other countries. So this was an asset that we had. We don't have a uniform national health system with a common data set. At the same time, we could move much more effectively toward interoperability of data systems through electronic health records and, in effect, position ourselves with a virtual national health data system, even in the absence of a coherent, integrated health care system. So there may be ways that we will be better able to position the resources we have and can compensate for the deficiencies within our system by using smart ways of preparing and, in fact, also improving the delivery of care in the routine time as well as in a pandemic. So was there or is there a a poster child of what was done right and what we can learn from abroad? Some of the countries that had, for at least periods of time, some of the most successful controls were countries that actually were also relatively isolated, so they had that advantage. So, for example, we could look to New Zealand or to Australia and say, well, this seemed to be working there. At the same time, how does that apply to a country that's larger, that has many internal and external movement of people, etc. It's not always as obvious. We can learn from some countries very clear lessons. For example, Korea, South Korea and uh, Japan did a much better job on testing. Early on, extensive, ample, well-designed testing strategies. And we ought to go back and make an effort to be Sure, we extract the lessons. What made that possible? How was it deployed? How were the data analyzed and utilized? So I think rather than think we would adopt wholesale some other country's experience and say, oh, this is the template for us, I think we can be much more selective and assess elements of the response and attempt to see what worked well and where we could learn from the experience of others. So, Eric, what do you think we may have learned from other countries' response to this epidemic? Rachel, I want to repeat what Harvey is saying about testing, because testing is the very first modality available to us for disease control, ahead of having any treatments or vaccines for these diseases. Testing is particularly important for diseases like COVID-19. If you go back to the original SARS outbreak, which occurred in 
originally in China and Hong Kong and then spread throughout the world, including, including the U.S., we were able to control that disease through quarantine. But the reason we were is because people showed up as symptomatic at the time they were transmitting disease. But COVID-19 isn't that disease. We need testing to figure out who has it. For most infections, it's likely that we're going to have diagnostics before we have treatments. And so implementing those is the fastest way and perhaps the most powerful way of preventing transmission that we have. So getting it started early and getting it implemented widely and having access to all of those data so that you can make public health decisions based on the results of that testing, I think are really central to pandemic preparedness. This does raise a question about uh, what did the U.S. perhaps do well that others might emulate or learn from? And here, I think a prime example is the development of an effective vaccine that was safe, that proved to be remarkably effective in preventing serious illness and death from this disease. Drawing upon literally decades of prior fundamental research to do such rapid and focused applied work when we need it, we can both learn again in the U.S. about the importance of basic research, the importance of collaboration across industry and between government and industry. It also introduces, from a global point of view, the importance of pre-positioning vaccine production capacity in different parts of the world so that you mitigate some of the problem of availability of new vaccines in the developed or wealthier countries as compared to other parts of the world. And so there are many lessons embedded in the vaccine experience, both good and things we could do much better in terms of availability, production, and distribution globally. I want to know, and I'll turn to you, Eric, first, what surprised you about this epidemic and what happened? What did you learn? I think that there are lessons all over the place, but let me just choose a few of them. Um, The first is that I relearned the lesson that an infection that spread by a respiratory route is really the most problematic kind of infection that we have. We have had very serious illnesses spread by insect vectors, for example, by contaminated water. There are clear interventions for each one of those that can be tailored specifically to the disease. But what we saw from a respiratory infection is that it affected all aspects of our lives. At the beginning of the outbreak, that meant you were susceptible to death. So I think that would be one big takeaway. The second big takeaway is that it is very difficult to do social engineering on a large scale for a very sustained period of time. If you look at the beginning of the outbreak, it was relatively easy for people to buy into the idea that when they were facing a potentially fatal disease, that there were measures they had to take. But it's very tough to stick with those. The length of time that people were willing to abide by restrictions varied from place to place. At the same time, until we had the vaccines, they were our primary interventions. And 
if you look at the lessons we learned from the isolated areas like New Zealand, for example, they totally worked. So it wasn't as if they weren't effective. They were just hard to implement. And and I guess one last lesson I'm going to put in there is to reinforce what Harvey just said. The development of vaccines was a scientific triumph, but it was a scientific triumph that was enabled by a number of policy decisions, including committing to spend a lot of money on something you didn't know that it was going to work, including breaking down some of the barriers between government scientists and industrial scientists. That does provide a model and a very attractive model for us going forward. So let's talk about going forward. Dr. Feinberg, we have this public health emergency declared over. I don't know if that makes us vulnerable. We can discuss that. But what do we need to do now to look at what may be ahead for the next pandemic? Now that we've declared that the emergency is passed, let's keep in mind this is a public human social construct of what is an emergency. It's not a biological viral construct. And I'm not sure anyone remembered to tell the virus that the emergency has passed. We do still have to be vigilant very clearly with this disease, but there's even a stronger hazard in my mind, which is over-focusing, over-concentrating our thinking about the last pandemic in preparation for what might come next. In fact, we are susceptible to emerging infections from a variety of sources. We are still vulnerable potentially to intentional spread of diseases from malefactors who want to do harm to others. There are many different possible ways in which our health as a global community could be threatened. And we need to have a stance of preparedness and readiness to detect and respond in the ways that that particular next challenge, whatever it may be, will present itself. A different virus spread in a different manner with a different time frame for incubation and expression of disease could require a different kind of testing and isolation and management strategy. And that's the special challenge today. Eric, you work with infectious disease. This has been your career. And how do you see what we need to do to prepare I think that there is a good parallel to what Harvey is saying, and it actually comes from the current COVID epidemic. The COVID epidemic occurred in waves initially. As people became immunized against one strain, that strain could no longer be successful. And the only strain that could be successful was one that was able to avoid the immunity that was pre-existing to some extent. And as more and more immunity and more and broader immunity has evolved, we're seeing less ability of the virus to to make these escapes. That's not to say it won't happen in the future. And very much like those viral variants, there's selection acting that the only things that we're going to see, of course, are the things that we can still get. And those are the things for which we didn't prepare. I entirely agree with Harvey. I do think that respiratory viruses, in particular, 
continue to represent one of our biggest problems and likely will in the future. Moving forward, Dr. Feinberg, what are your concerns about this, quote, end of a public health emergency? And what should we be aware of? What should clinicians be aware of? What should patients be aware of? To position ourselves for the future, we have to adequately invest in public health infrastructure and readiness. And that is at a local county level, municipal, at a state level, as well as at a national level. We need also standards of performance and readiness that legislators and managers can use to assess that public health readiness so that we can be sure in the same way that we certify hospitals that our public health communities are in fact ready, prepared, and able to respond. Beyond that, we need at a national level to have a strategy of readiness that invests in the necessary array of science, equipment, and human capacity to detect and respond to emergencies of a public health character. And this is a very substantial demand. It does mean having a readiness capacity that may be during, if you will, lax times, underutilized, but ready to be mobilized in order to be better prepared, whatever the next threat may be. Eric, what are your thoughts on on this? I think there's something that I'd add, which is the research platforms required to figure out how to respond most optimally. If we look back at COVID-19, what we saw is that it took a very long time for the first high-quality randomized control trials to come up. And when they occurred, they occurred in kind of unexpected places. For example, a lot of the big observational database trials that started were among the cardiology community. And why is that? It's because they had those platforms that already existed. They had the infrastructure there, the research trial networks. Subsequent trials came from other communities, including in particular the HIV community, because the HIV researchers, again, had platforms set up and were able to pivot. Those sorts of research trial networks are expensive. They require continuous funding, not grant-to-grant funding, in order to be around in case they're needed. And I think that we should be sure that those things exist. Looking forward to the next outbreak, I think that it is important not just to emphasize the failures that we've had, and there have been many, but the successes that we've had. We are able to protect people against severe disease and death now, for the most part. And a lot of the measures that we utilize throughout remain important now, the the social measures as opposed to just the medical interventions like vaccines and like therapies. I think that when a new outbreak occurs, it's really important to continue to use the lessons that we've already learned. I hope that people can appreciate that we learn as we go in a new situation like a pandemic that the best advice that comes forward based on available knowledge is always at a given moment in time. So looking at good 
evidence and expertise that has the right motivation as well as scientific background is increasingly important. And being able to appreciate what should be done as new knowledge arises or as the situation itself evolves over time. Thank you both very, very much. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. Next time, we explore a new study that may revolutionize how we treat a cancer that is affecting a growing number of younger Americans. Other patients to hear my voice and know that there was somebody out there that took the risk, did this trial, and is cured now, and, and it worked. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum.